Hi, this is Eileen Graff from Mr. Belvedere, and you're listening to Retro TV Trivia with your host, Pat McCormack. Greetings, fellow classic TV fans, and welcome to Retro TV Trivia. I'm your host, Pat McCormack. On today's show, we have a true Hollywood legend. Rich Carell is a highly respected writer, director, producer, creator, and actor with a mile-long list of credits. Upon landing his role as Richard Rickover on Leave it to Beaver, Rich happily discovered that to play Beaver's best buddy, he didn't need to act. Jerry Mathers and Rich have been real-life best friends for over 60-plus years thanks to this fateful casting. But this tidbit doesn't even scratch the surface of his incredibly interesting Hollywood history and experiences. I guarantee that you will be amazed hearing his stories, as well as the awesome current events he has to share with us. Enjoy! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast the diversely talented Rich Correll. Hey, how you doing, Pat? I was trying to figure out the word. Multi-talented? Diversely talented? I don't know if those two words actually have been used together, but it sure does describe you. Well, I've, I've been lucky. I've had a career that uh, you know included acting and writing and producing and directing and I was usually working with really good people, so luckily a lot of those things were actually seen by people and, you know, actually were broadcast, so that was great. And I was, and, you know, I was kind of in the right place at the right time a few times, and um, I've had a blast doing it all. Um, I've been in show business for 65 years, actually 66 years. I stopped counting a while ago. I shouldn't <laughs> say things. But anyway, um, and it's just been, the whole thing's been really fun. Yeah. Well, that's great. We ran into each other at the Hollywood show about, oh, I guess about four weeks back. We have a mutual friend there, as a matter of fact. Uh, what's his name again? Oh, Jerry Mathers. Yeah, that's it. Well, him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jerry's been a friend of mine literally since the first day we met, and that was back on Leave it to Beaver, which was in season three. Um, we made friends almost immediately, and... Um, we had a lot in common because we liked, you know, science fiction and horror movies, and we were thrilled that we were at Universal where they made all that stuff. And, you know, his family was super friendly. Uh, I would bring him over to my house, and my family loved him. I'd go to his house, and his family and I got along great. And it was just something that was really awesome. And the thing is, I'm something like, I think I'm uh, three and a half weeks older than Jerry. Yep. So we were temporaries, and, you know, we... He went to a Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic high school. We, you know, dated girls from the same schools. We had fun all through high school. We were in a band together. So we were, it wasn't just an acquaintance on set. And Jerry ended up being a really good friend of mine. So behind the scenes, Jerry and I had spent a lot of time together. I was best man at his wedding. Yeah. Um, he was just, uh, he's always been a, like a really good friend of mine. Still is. Yeah. Again, uh, one of the most down-to-earth um, legends that I've ever met. And, you know, I hate to tell you this, Rich, but you do have a, a nasty rumor going around about you. Um, and that is you are actually the nicest guy in Hollywood. I'm sorry. I had to break it to you. Nicest guys in Hollywood are Tom Hanks and Ron Howard. Okay. Those are the nicest guys I ever worked with. Them. They're just, they're just awesome. Both of those guys. Yeah. And that's great. You know, it's the, it could be such a pretentious uh, situation to be a star of that magnitude and just be a jerk. I mean, it could be easy, I would think, but uh, 
No. Nice, nice guys finish first in my book. Well, my father was obviously a huge star, but he always said that, you know, you always have to be nice to everybody and the fans are what put you there and you should always be kind. Um, you should always be receptive to people who are fans. You know, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be in the positions we were in. So that was kind of instilled in me when I was a kid. And so I, I, I believe that I still kind of do that kind of thing. I like meeting people and talking about stuff. I don't get tired of talking about things because, you know, a lot of people have been affected by some of the stuff I've done. So I, I think that's fantastic. So I love to talk about it. Sure. And, I, and I just think being nice to people is a lot easier, easier than not being nice to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That just goes without saying. And of course, you come from Hollywood royalty, your father being Charles Correll from Amos and Andy. And um, according to Jerry, he was just your parents were so sweet that he said it was unfortunate that you grew up in a really rough neighborhood, though. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I see, that's another thing. That was so lucky to grow up where we grew up because, you know, it was just home to us. But our neighbors were, were it was almost a ridiculous list of, of A-list actors and people. I mean, we had... Alan Ladd. These are the immediate next door neighbors because we had a large property and these people lived in a circle around us, like the, on the property line. But it was Alan Ladd, Sonia Henney, Lana Turner, <clears throat> Judy Garland, Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren McCall. We had Jerry Lewis, Carol Burnett, Sammy Kahn, the songwriter, Walt Disney, who we spent a lot of time with, Cy Howard, who was married to Gloria Graham. Um, and then we had the Converse Shoes people and the people who founded the Bank of America. So these were Giannini's. These were our immediate neighbors. And so during the summertime, my, you know, my dad would have these parties where he would barbecue chicken. And we had this large property and we had a natural canyon on the property. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the property would go down into the, he built the flagstone barbecue. It's very large. And he used to barbecue chicken and the snow would waft all over the neighborhood, but you'd go down there on Sunday afternoon, you'd go swimming and you'd go down and get barbecue chicken for dinner and down, you know, you'd see Open Crosby and the Marx Brothers and Tyrone Power and Jeanette McDonald and Loretta Young. And I mean, all of these people were just the friends, the neighbors, the people who hung out with you, Jack Benny, you know, it was so much fun. And the thing is, when we were kids, my brother and I and my sisters, we knew who these people were. They weren't just, you know, anybody. We knew who they were, and we appreciated who they were. So it was fun doing that. But spending time with Walt Disney, in particular, either at his house or our house, that was a lot of fun. And we, you know, we went to the opening day of, you know, Disneyland as guests of Walt Disney. And you know, we used to ride the Carrollwood Express, which is his miniature steam train he had on his property. Oh yeah, right down the. You know, we used to do all that stuff. So he was kind of a regular at our house. You know, I put on a. I built this display in the basement of our house once, which was like a Frankenstein thing. And my mother was horrified that I'd bring anybody into the basement of our house. But <laughs> Walt Disney and Ozzie Nelson came down to look at this thing that I had built that I was all proud of. And you know, after Ozzie left, it was me and Walt Disney down there. And, and Walt said, you know, you have a bit, a lot of light, kind of orange light in one place and green in the other. Cause I was using Christmas lights to decorate this thing, you know, Christmas decorations. <laughs> So he said, I'm going to help you with that. And so in my basement, he was like unscrewing and screwing back in Christmas lights, helping me with the display. It was just me and Walt Disney in our basement. So, I mean, there's stories like that. You know, Judy Garland being next door, making soup in her kitchen and singing over the rainbow. 
to me. Uh, it was it was just awesome. I mean, I, I appreciated it then, and I appreciate it now. So we had a great time in a great house, a great neighborhood, and we were just really fortunate that a lot of those people came around. And you know the thing is, I always responded to these guys. Everything for me was positive. I don't remember Judy Garland's having problems with pills right. or anything like that. She just left. So Mrs. Luft was like super nice to us. Mm. You know, Alan Ladd couldn't have been nicer. You know, Walt Disney couldn't have been nicer. So, you know, my experience with them was all positive. And today when people ask me about them, it's the same thing. I just remember them the way they were as being great with us and the family. So it was really cool because it was all positive and fun. And these people that we looked up to and recognized from the movies or television or something like that. Always turned out to be great. Bill Boyd, who played Hopalong Cassidy, literally was one of my dad's best friends. So we saw him all the time, and what a nice guy. He was—he really was like Hoppy. He was the best. So it was just cool. I was really lucky. That's amazing. So when does the memoir come out, Rich? Well, I wrote a book. I finished it about 10 months ago. Mm-hmm. It's called Hollywood Kid Gone Good yeah. instead of Hollywood Kid Gone Bad because we knew plenty of them. But, yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm looking for, I have a, I've been offered a couple of publishing deals, but I'm not quite satisfied yet with that. Um, so I'm kind of playing with the publishing aspect of it, but it'll come out, I guess, as soon as I decide to get it published, which is lucky because, you know, everybody writes books. There's right. a million books. And the funny thing is, this is a book about Hollywood because, you know, I was lucky. I lived and I was born and was raised just on the cusp of old Hollywood, just as it was kind of fading out. And so this book is, you know, very positive and very happy and everything. And sometimes if you talk to literary agents and people like that, they go, well, you know, where's the dirt? You know, you you live next to Judy Garland and, you know, what was the problems with her? What was the problems with Bogart? And what was the problem? But that's not what I wrote. I mean, I wrote my experience being positive. So I'm sure if it was trashing people, it would probably get easy. It would be an easier publish. But for me, that's not how it really happened. So, yeah, um, I just wrote about what really went on, and so it's it's just it's great for the TCM crowd because it talks about a lot of their heroes and the way I speak about them is the way I experience them. And ninety nine percent of that was really fun and really positive. Right. Well, I'll be first in line because again, I'm kind of the uh, I operate the same way. There's so many people that do what I do that go for the sensationalism of the tabloid kind of headline of who died and who's, you know, look at them now and just really awful stuff. And it's sad that that actually gets people to click on it because, oh, I can't wait to see how bad they're doing, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, a lot of Hollywood that was really fun and there was a lot of it that was glamorous. And then there was a lot of it that was just these people were just normal people living their lives when they would come and visit. They were away from the press and away from the studios and they were just having fun. You know, they'd eat the chicken dinner and laugh and tell jokes and go swimming. And it was like, it's great. It was like anybody else. Right. Right. And, and so during that, uh, that young time of your life, um, you were, you were on quite a few classic shows. I see Lassie, I see Ozzie and Harriet and among many others, but Obviously, it must have been great to be able to join your buddy, Jerry. Now, I don't know, had you guys met before doing Leave it to Beaver, or was that your first chance? No, I met him on the set. I mean, the the show was established and was a big hit. Um, I, you know, I was just happy to get a chance to be on it. I, I never knew if I would do one show or two shows or 
five shows or 30 episodes or what it was. Cause for me, it was like a day to day thing. And then, you know, the character of Richard became a reoccurring character, which was, which was awesome, but I had never met him before. I met him on the set. So I think the first place I saw him was the schoolroom, Cause there was a schoolroom on stage 17 where we shot the show where we all went to school. And the funny thing is literally from the first day that I worked there, Jerry and I sat next to each other. I mean, we had a, our teacher was named Irene Burke, who happened to be the president of the, you know, teachers guild, like for, for a studio teachers guild. Mm. She was the president. And I don't know, she just said, well, Richard, you go up and sit here. And it was right literally next to Jerry. So from the first day I walked onto the set and then got into the school room, I, you know, Jerry and I were sitting next to each other, like, you know, like we had chosen our seats as friends in school. That was really cool. It was just, that was also a lucky coincidence because we were in the same class, taking the same stuff, even using some of the same books that were given to us by schools. And so, it, again, that was just this in sync thing that was really cool that happened when I got there. Right. But I mean, literally from the first day, he was right next, right next to me in school. And so we were like, you know, at recess and stuff, we were always having fun and talking about things. And, you know, we were into making models and we kind of, we, every, we liked the same stuff. So it was like we clicked immediately. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it's so great because you forged a friendship that's lasted over 60 years. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he's really, really a good friend of mine. And uh, I talk to him all the time and his wife's a good friend of ours. And I mean, it's great. And and we've posed with the whole Mathers family. I mean, Marilyn Mathers is fantastic. His mom and I oh, knew his yeah. dad. I knew his sister. Really, I mean, the whole family was like we were all really good friends. You know, my wife and I. We were we were the ones. Well, we came to the show together and came up to meet you and Beth, and we had the same impression. You and Beth were just the sweetest people. <laughs> and I was just. Well, like, why not? But look how much fun it is. You know, you're there having fun, with, you know, sharing memories with people who come to see you. It's like, what's better than that? And of course, it's 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 easy to be sweet. Right. Well, and, and Rich, according to Jerry, that was one of your very first fan events. Is that true? Yeah, I've never been to any of those. I mean, the honest thing is, you know, John Provost, who was Timmy on Lassie, and sure. Jerry, who was Beaver, and, you know, Tony, who was Wally, and, you know, Tim Considine and the My Three Sons guys, those were... Those were the real, you know, Johnny Crawford. They were big stars. I was kind of, you know, a part of it, but I wasn't that status. So I just never thought that anyone would, you know, want to come and meet kind of the B players in a show. So it's like, I don't know. It just never occurred to me to do that. And Teresa and a few other people, John Provost's wife, Lori, was saying, no, you ought to go, you ought to go, because people would like to meet, you know, any of the cast because the show was so famous. So... I said, okay, I'll try it. So I went and I had a blast. It was great. And then I just did another one in Tennessee. So that was fun, too. Yeah, yeah. Jerry was telling me about that and that, uh, I guess, how you guys were all pleasantly surprised by the turnout. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the show is still so famous. And, and most of the people who really watched it a lot either see it in reruns and they're a little older or they saw it originally and they're your age. So everybody has, you know, things in common. Right. So that's really cool. It has a large audience because it's still being rerun all the time. But there's people who kind of watch it religiously, which is really cool. You know, my my eight and ten year old nephew and niece religiously. See, that's really cool that they like that. It's timeless. Again, we were lucky to get involved in something that was that big a hit. 
Well, yeah. It just never gets old. I feel the same way about other shows like Andy Griffith. And uh, just one of those that comes on, you can just watch it. Sure, I've seen it, but I can watch this again because it was so well done. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's good. And um, so, well, I'm glad you guys had a great stint there. I, I know it was in honor of, of the late, great Tony. And uh, his wife, Lauren, was with you guys. And I think that's just a beautiful tribute to yep. a wonderful guy. <laughs> Tony was a great guy. When people ask me about Tony, the thing that I remember the most about him was, like, when, when Jerry and I were working on the show, we were three years younger than Tony. And when you're 11 and someone's 14 or you're 12 and somebody's 15, that's a big difference. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're kind of a mid-teenager and you're dealing with smaller kids, that's a big difference. And Tony and Ken Osmond, who played Eddie Haskell, they could have just kind of blown us off and said, ah, you know, they're the little kids and we're the older kids and we're just going to do our thing. But that's not what happened. Right. Tony always had time to talk to us and, you know, shoot hoops and show us acrobatics. And he was a great acrobat and a great diver. Right. But he was just this really cool guy. A lot of the girls would come around the set that wanted to see him. And, <laughs> he, and he just never blew us off. I mean, we, he always had time. He always wanted to know what we were doing. Sometimes he'd take us to the movies. He was just a great guy. Yeah. He just, you know, instead of being some guy that was just like, yeah, you know, they're the little kids and we're the older guys. That's not how it happened. He was always really, really friendly. So I was, I always admired him and I always appreciated him. I thought he was a, you know, he was like an older brother to everybody. So that was really cool. Yeah. I had the pleasure of having a one-on-one -on -one with him just by happenstance. And oh my gosh, I was taken with just, what a down-to-earth great guy. He was proud, talking about how proud he was of his son. And just, it was just a really warm conversation which <laughs> well the other thing is you know the most famous character that ever came out of leave it to beaver obviously was eddie haskell everybody wants to know about eddie haskell they talk about ken osmond all the time and ken was like it was like tony i mean ken was another guy that had time for everybody was really friendly he just couldn't have been nicer he was very funny and he was literally the opposite of the character he played which is actually kind of a tribute to his acting right but he was not i mean he was not a nasty guy that didn't mean what he said and was like putting on airs for the parents and then was nasty to the kids. That's not how Ken was. Ken was just a super nice guy that was nice to everybody. So my recollection of both Tony and Ken was they couldn't have been nicer. But the funny thing is, you know, you know, Eddie Haskell, the real Eddie Haskell character was just kind of such a squirrely guy. <laughs> Ken wasn't like that at all. Ken was just another great guy. I mean, you know, you'd come to work in the morning if you saw him first. And he was in makeup or craft service. Oh, you know, how you guys doing? What are you up to? And yeah, it just, everybody was just super nice. It was a family of people. And, and as I say, Kenny, or, you know, he was having played Eddie Haskell. He wasn't anything like Eddie Haskell. He was just, he couldn't have been nicer. Right. And yet the, the stereotype bug bit him. And what's he do? Instead of going down the tubes, like many of the, you know, <laughs> the peers, he reinvents himself and becomes a cop. Well, not only that, he was a motorcycle cop that would, like, hand out tickets to drivers. <laughs> and so if you were stopped by him, he'd walk up to the car, and it's Eddie Haskell, and he'd say, your license, please. You know, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Am I out of my mind? Because he looked exactly the same. Ken always looked the same, whether he had a police uniform on or not. That's the thing that I think is the funniest, because he was so recognized. You know, I, having a cop come up to your window and asking for your license and it happens to be Eddie Haskell, you'd have to think, wait, am I living in the Twilight Zone or what's going on? <laughs> anyway, that was great. I love that he did that. And yeah, he was a good guy. I can hear it now. Hey, Squirt, 
you know your uh, stickers are expired? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's pretty funny. <laughs> and then I understood he grew a mustache just so that he could he wouldn't be, he wouldn't throw people off. <laughs> I know, but you could still tell it was him. Oh, sure, I would have. <laughs> I would have because it was like, oh no, I just got pulled over by my big brother. <laughs> yeah, there, there it is. That's right. <laughs> well, and so Connolly and Mosier were obviously the creators of the show, and now. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Rich, but they actually worked with your dad, too. Big time. Yeah. Conley and Mosier met my father. Actually, Joe Conley met my dad at the 1939 New York World's Fair. Just for a moment, Amos and Andy were appearing there, and actually were in, Amos and Andy were in one of the first TV broadcasts that was ever made in, in this country, which was a TV broadcast, kind of an experimental thing that they did at the New York World's Fair in 39. And Joe Conley was an usher, at like some theater they were appearing in and just walked up and said, I'm Joe Conley and I'm a fan and blah, blah, blah. And my, you know, my dad didn't really remember him until later. And, and when Joe kind of recounted that story to him, but in the mid forties, when the Amos Nanny show had gone to a half hour show, Conley and Mosier came in as a team of writers. Um, and my dad and Freeman Gosden, especially Freeman, who was really critical of writers because Freeman had done so much writing. So had my dad, but Freeman was really a very creative guy came up with a lot of the characters and the plots. And my dad always gave him a lot of credit, <clears throat> but Freeman Gosden thought that Conley and Mosier were like the best writers that they had seen in a long time. And those were the guys that kind of made the cut and stayed there. And then with the half hour show ran around 48, 47, 48 Conley and Mosier actually were like the producers. I mean, they were kicked up to like the showrunners, you know, working for Carell and Gosden so Conley and Mosier were a big, big part of that. And then when the Amos and Andy show was sold to television, and this was one of the only radio shows that was being made as a radio show and a TV show at the same time. Right. Of course, that was with a black cast, and that was a fantastic cast. Mm -hmm. But Conley and Mosier produced that show, and at the same time were producing the radio show. So they were the showrunners on both the radio and television, Amos and Andy, and in the half-hour format, both on radio and TV, they were like the head guys. So yeah. they were very, very accomplished writers. And Freeman, who wasn't easy to work for, really, really thought they were good writers. So, yeah, they were a big part of Amos and Andy. Well, and, and what a great influence the show turned out to be for later situation comedies. I mean, you look at Sanford and Son, All in the Family, all these, all these shows were inspired by the work of not only your father, but of, of these great writers and producers and I just find that so fascinating. Well, you know, the guys, there's great writers these days, too. And I mean, you know, there's, there's the Gary Marshalls of the world and people like that, you know, coming up through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So there's always great writers around. Yeah. Um, but those guys, the guys that came out of radio that made the transition from radio to TV, especially in early TV, you know, people like Milt Josephsburg and Harry Crane and people like that, those guys were such good writers. Uh, they understood, I mean, writing for radio was obviously different than writing for TV because you didn't see things on the radio. You had to imagine that stuff. So it was a, it, it was a different kind of writing. But the structure of the comedy and the creation of the characters and having the characters, you know, have their idiosyncrasies and their slogans and all this other stuff, that pretty much remained the same. So a lot of those guys who made the transition were really, really great pioneers of comedy and the spoken word in comedy. It was really great. 
Right. Well, and and seeing just this amount of genius that you were, <laughs> I mean, virtually exposed to in person, that combined with your own talent, and suddenly you've got all these titles, you know, actor, writer, producer, director. I mean, what is it that you can't do? There's nothing. Stunt work? <laughs> it's just that, you know, I again, I've worked hard over the years. I really have. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But sure. I was lucky because... I got a break. I got a break in television. After I got out of college, I got a break in, in television production. Um, um, and, you know, I started working for people like Gary Marshall, who was such a great guy. He wasn't really a great writer and creator, but he was this friendly guy. And he ran a division of Paramount, you know, where he had something like four shows in production and, and you know, another three in syndication or whatever it was. And he he came from a place where if he liked your work, he'd promote you. And so being a non-family member and coming into things like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley when they were already established, that was just lucky for me. And then, you know, Kerry kind of handed me the ball and I could run with it, so he promoted me. And then through that relationship with Gary, I got to know Tom Miller and Bob Boyette, who were literally like my biggest mentors in television. And those guys were and unbelievably successful. I mean, Tom and Bob launched the whole TGIF thing at ABC in the 90s. I mean, they couldn't have been bigger stars than that, but they were super nice, really creative, surrounded themselves with the cream of the crop of writers and directors and everybody else, but they were loyal. If you were you know, out there working hard and doing a great job, they were loyal to you and they would promote you. And that was just, you know, I, I worked for them and it was... It was a lot of fun, but it, it was hard work. But they were such loyal, appreciative guys. It, it made it easier. And then, of course, in your career, your your career advances because these guys are kind of like taking you under their wing and taking care of you, and you know, letting you have these opportunities. I mean, it was it was really cool. I mean, it was it was a great time to be working, and it, you know, you're doing these shows that everybody seems to know, and you're just working for people that are really nice. It was great. Well, that, that's how that. You know, I advanced that way, really. Right. Plus, when they handed you the ball, you ran with it. And very well, I might add. Well, I always had fun on stage. I always, I loved actors because I was an actor. I understood, you know, their psyches for the most part. Right. Um, I understood schedule and budget and time, so the studio was happy. And I came up through post-production because... In the days when I started working on sitcoms, everything was done on 35 millimeter film, right. most of it on color negative. And I had had a huge background thanks to Harold Lloyd. And that yeah. was another like getting to know Harold Lloyd so well. Oh, yeah. But I had been his film curator in dealing with emotional emotions and, um, and printers and projectors and 35 and copying things and duping stuff and soundtracks and all this stuff. I had this background in post when I first arrived there. So when I arrived at Paramount, I was like a music coordinator because I was a musician and I was hired to kind of get all the music into, into Gary's shows, whether it be recording them live in the studios or doing sideliners or having bands come in and play or Arnold's jukebox or whatever it was. <laughs> Only after about six months, Gary's, sister, not Penny, the other one, Ronnie, the older one, said, this guy has this film background. He's got a great post background. We should advance him, and, and there's an opening. 
let's make him an associate producer. And, you know, I thought, oh, this can be great. Well, the opening was on Laverne and Shirley, which was the number two show in the country. <laughs> it was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, after six months of being at Paramount, and after, you know, I was there in 77, suddenly I was producing the number two show in the country. That wasn't because of me. It was because of timing and luck and whatever. But once I got in there, you know, I was able to kind of establish a way to produce these shows and save the studio money. So the studio loved it and the actors loved it because it put them on stage less. And I was just, I mean, I, you know, I just figured out. So, but then you see Gary and everybody let you do that. If you could run, they would let you, they would let you advance. And I love that. I mean, cause they, they were very encouraging, but they were really, really, really loyal and they would advance you, advance you, advance you. Cause that led to writing and, and line producing. And then ultimately with Tom and Bob, it led to directing. Right. Well, and you could back it up too. And not to mention technical prowess. I mean, if you can bridge the gap between creativity and technical know-how, you're in there. I mean, that's just. Well, you know what's funny is that I agree with you on that, and I was a technical guy. And I think what's funny is nowadays everything is digital and everything's on computers. Now I have a son who, you know, just gets Photoshop and how you can make computers do everything. And I mean, the guy is, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. And I'm not a computer guy. I mean, I know how to read mail and, you know, <laughs> say hi. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a computer guy. But in the day when it was all on film, yeah, that's when I was that guy. I could tell you about Technicolor in by Vision Printing and how soundtracks work and, you know, what kind of density the exposure should be on, on optical tracks and, the density of negatives and how you print this and do that. And they were, this was, I was just this guy that, you know, in post-production for film, I was the guy. Right. And that was really cool because it was so much fun. You know, I was, it's like the Beaver. We were getting paid for having fun. Right. And I just loved doing all that technical stuff because it was, those challenges were just so much fun to solve. Right. It was really cool. You were good with a razor blade, I would assume. Mm-hmm. I was great with the razor blade. Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I figured that out. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, uh, you know, uh, making this uh, transition between being a child star and then getting into the <laughs> into the nitty gritty of show business behind the scenes, and of course, you had such a huge influence there. But I want to go back back to the Beaver days real quick um, because I I heard a rumor, and I, you can dispel this right now, and I would be. That would be good. Or you could say, yeah, yeah. And that was that you actually inspired the Munsters. Now, is that true? That is true. Oh. Um, and I'll tell you exactly how that happened. Joe Conley's son, Ricky, was one of my best friends. We started going to school together literally from kindergarten. So I knew Ricky Conley a lot longer than I even knew Jerry. And Ricky was basically, I think, Joe's inspiration for... Beaver. Joe's son, Jay, was Wally. There was a friend of ours, Ricky and I had a friend, a kind of a heavyset friend named Terry Fotre, who was Larry Mandelo. I mean, that's just the way I looked at it. I mean, Joe Conley would go out with us as kids and carry a small little notebook. And he would, if we would say funny things or do funny things, I remember one time I was out to dinner with him and we were at a place called the Tale of a Cock in, in the L.A. It was on the Sunset Strip. And I, I was having dinner with his family, and I said to him, you know, Mr. Conley, my mom told me that I have to 
take a bath to go out with you guys tonight. I said, but this restaurant's so dark, you wouldn't know if I was dirty or not. And he <laughs> completely busted up and wrote that down because it sounded like something Beaver would say. But he was always writing down stuff that the kids were doing. Okay, well, Ricky and I were pals. And I, was, I saw him at his house, and I, and I saw Rick at school. I saw Rick at his home. <clears throat> I was over at the Conley home. Rick was over at our place. <clears throat> and like Jerry and I, Ricky and I were crazy about monsters. And I was always saying to Joe Conley, you ought to do a show about monsters. You're at Universal. You should do a show about Frankenstein. Right. You, know, you should do a show about Dracula. And then, you know, we'd go to dinner and go, hey, remember last night on Shock Theater, we'd see the Wolfman? And so Conley was always listening to this stuff. So he finally said to Ricky and I, I'm going to do a show about monsters. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. You're going to do a show about monsters? And he said, yeah, I'm going to use all the licensed universal monsters and make this show. He said, I'm going to have Frankenstein. I'm going to have the Wolfman. I'm going to have Dracula. I'm going to have everything. And I went, oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. So I had finished with Leave it to Beaver, my end of it, because I went off to high school. And this was in 1963. And when I came back from, I was going to high school in San Jose. Oh, my. And then when I came back once, Joe said to my dad, hey, I have this pilot that I made called the Munsters. And I want to show it to you and Rich because I want to see what you guys think of it. So he had a 16 millimeter print of it made in color, by the way, the Munsters right. pilot was shot in color. I think it was just under 20 minutes or something like that. So he ran it for, he ran this Munsters thing at his house. And I have to tell you, honestly, I hated it. Oh. I hated it because mm -hmm. he had taken you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and made kind of like clowns out of them. Yeah. And I never liked that. I loved the movie Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Because Abbott and Costello were really funny. I love them. It's a funny movie, but the monsters are always, always taken seriously. You know, Frankenstein's scary and he's, he can hurt you and Dracula's Lugosi and he's still evil and the Wolfman is still the Wolfman. And that's why I love the movie because the monsters were never made fun of. The movie's a wonderful, funny movie, but the monsters are awesome in it. And suddenly, you know, Fred Gwynn was stumbling around like a circus clown, and I just, I just thought, this is never going to work, because he's taken monsters and made fun of them. He's, it's never going to work. And of course, you know, the monsters and the Adams Family came out the same year, I think, and one was on CBS and the other on ABC, and they were both hits. So right. what do I know? So people like those those shows, and of course. You know, the Munsters became a really iconic show anyway. But yes, Ricky Conley and I, even a little bit of Jerry's influence on Joe Conley was responsible for the for the creation of the Munsters, and that's 100% true. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. I got to hand it to uh, my follower, Tom McCleskey, because he was the one who told me about that. And I was like, what? I don't see that anywhere. <laughs> so I, I think I'll just, I'll go to the source. <laughs> yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, Rick and, and I and... Even as I said, even Jerry. I mean, we were always talking about monsters and monsters this and monsters that. You know, I started the collection that I have, which is this huge collection of. Oh yeah, we're going there for sure. <laughs> yeah, it started with Leave It to Beaver. Oh man, well that's another thing we have in common. I'm my son and I are big into horror, sci-fi, fantasy too, but the, definitely those first two are. If you saw my son's room, um, Rich, you would think it was your museum, but. Not quite as elaborate. But. Well, you'll have to bring him by my, my exhibit. Oh, the plan is in place. Well, not concrete in place, but we're definitely... 
Again, I was down there in Hollywood. Why didn't I? Well, anyway, <laughs> hindsight is always twenty twenty, Rich. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I want to talk about this incredible exhibit of yours, and Icons of Darkness, which what's well, a great title right there, but how long did it take for you to actually accumulate the world's largest private collection of these, of these props and costumes? Well, the first item I collected was in 1960. So that's 60 years ago. Dumpster diving, right? <laughs> that's what it was. I mean, it was on Leave it to Beaver. We went up to the makeup lab because we kept asking Bob Don, our makeup guy, to take us up there. So we finally said, oh, okay, boys. So he took us up and, you know, Jerry and I were all excited and looking at all the horror stuff. But I saw in the trash, they had thrown like a half mask from a movie called Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, you know, Karloff was Jekyll and Hyde. Right. And so this thing was in the trash. You know, it had hair on it and everything. I knew what it was. And they were like, eh, you know, we don't need this anymore. <laughs> so I thought someone was going to throw coffee on it or something. So I said to this guy, you know, I was like 10 years old. I said, hey, can I take that? And, yeah, sure, take it. I still have that, by the way. But anyway, that's wow. the first that I collected. And so that... Then I started to collect Don Post masks and talk to the effects guys and see what I could get around the studios. And, you know, this was before auctions all started. And I just started collecting and collecting and collecting. And then when the auction started, luckily I was making enough money to be taken seriously as a, a guy that the auction companies would send the catalogs to. And I started buying stuff at auction. And that became more and more and more and bigger, bigger, bigger. And it just kept getting... I mean, I've never traded or sold an item, you know, in over half a century of collecting. Oh, wow. So everything I ever collected, I have. So it's like just went on and on and on and on and on. So, you know, I mean, the collection is fantastic because I have things as small as gremlins, like the real gremlins, right. to the full-size dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. So it's Jeez. like I've got everything you can think of. And it's just so cool because... It, you know, in a way, it's fun to collect that stuff and see how people react to it. But more importantly, it's it's kind of preserving a part of our history in the United States that, you know, those movies have never gone out of style. So science fiction, fantasy, and horror films have always been really popular. But I'm collecting this stuff and kind of preserving the legacy of the people that made them and collecting and preserving the artifacts themselves. Right. Yeah, and like you said, people like to scream as much as they do laugh. You know, I do. Yeah, most people scream and then they laugh. So it's like you know, <laughs> people laughing and scaring them. Is in a way, it's a kind of a similar thing. I haven't actually ever done the opposite. So no, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, I mean, when I was a kid, my favorite day was Halloween, and sure. I always liked all the dressing up and decorating and the monster. I mean, we still, my wife and I, are still huge Halloween people. I mean, at my house here on the weekends. If Halloween's on a weekend, we get about 8,000 trick-or-treaters and it's during the week. <laughs> like we just did the one a couple of weeks ago. Well, that was, we ended up with like 5,500, I mean 5,000 something. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, we're, we're like really well known for it. So sure. the decorations are crazy good and there's actors and lights and sound effects. And, you know, it's, it's really cool. It's like a movie and everybody comes to see it. So, you know, Halloween was always a big deal. My parents couldn't understand what the deal was. Oh. They didn't understand why I was so into that. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. It was something that I loved when I was... My favorite movie is the original King Kong. Sure. And Jerry and I, we saw that together. Um, 
But I, I was so influenced by that movie because the strength of it is that it, it's able to transport you into this different world, you know, the prehistoric island. And yes. They're going to go find the, the giant gorilla and bring him back. And, and it's, so when I was a little kid, I was so fascinated by that movie. I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to know how they made it and who was in it and who were the people that did the sound and the music and everything else. And that influenced me so much that it made me really want to be in show business. Not so much my dad or the acting career. It was that movie. And then, of course, that's, you know, a genre-related adventure movie, but it's, you know, revered by science fiction and fantasy and horror fans. Right. Yeah. I love that movie, and that's why I wanted to be in show business. Isn't that great? Well, again, I share your love and interest of all things of that genre and cannot wait to get down there and see the exhibit. Now, this is on Hollywood and Highland, correct? Right on the corner. It's on the northwest corner of Hollywood and Highland, and it's right next to Foot Locker. Right. So if you can find Foot Locker, you can find us. And there's guided tours, correct? Everybody that goes through gets their own docent, and the docent will take you through and show you everything and tell you everything. And some people don't know all the stuff that's in there, and then other people who love all the stuff can tell you as much as the docent can tell you. It's really... <laughs> and there's things in there that date back to the 20s all the way up to modern day. So it's a nice mix of the old stuff and the new stuff. And I can tell you, folks, Rich has made it extremely affordable. So if you're there, it's something you, you'll want to do no matter what. And it won't put a strain on your pocketbook either. Nah, you know, we want families to be able to afford to come and see all the stuff. My ambition is to get it into a bigger location. I work on that all the time. Because when you go to see this exhibit, and it's just item after item after item, it's really fun. But people go, oh my God, it's such a huge collection. That's about 48% of the collection. Uh, wow. There's so much. And that stuff's in storage. And I want to get it out of storage and let people see that too. Yeah, that's the thing. As a collector myself, it's like I hate the fact that this stuff that should be seen is sitting in bins under my house. That's just not right. You know, and yet <laughs> I don't have the homes, homestead for displaying. <laughs> what, what kind of stuff do you collect? Well, mainly I, when I first got into collecting, it was sci-fi. Um, that was my big. I was a huge Trekkie. Was? Am a huge Trekkie. And uh, I spent my money there. And I have a major Hallmark collection of all the all their ornament lines. And so that was what I was collecting for the longest time. And again, 11 months out of the year sitting under the house, that just, I, I need a place like Hollywood and Highland. <laughs> it's not going to be that, it's not going to be that full. It'd be more like a pop-up, I think. <laughs> the uh, neighbor, the guy who lives across the street from me is George Takei. No kidding. Yeah, Mr. Zulu, right across the street. That's great. He's really a nice guy. So I've heard. And that's, again, that's what you want to hear. You want to hear everybody's? Oh, yeah, he couldn't be nicer. I invited him to a Halloween party over here, and he showed up dressed as Mr. Sulu. And some people are going, God, that guy over there, that's really good. That looks just like Mr. Sulu. <laughs> Wait a minute. That is Mr. Well, you know, he's, I mean, Hugh Hefner was one of my close friends for 25 years. We, My wife and I were regulars at the Playboy match, and it was so much fun. But... We had Halloween heart parties here where, you know, all these people would be out front and, you know, there's a mob and these two limos would pull up and out would come like three security guards and 12 girls and Hugh Hefner and people would go, God, that guy's dressed, he looks exactly like him. that was, And, you know, that was in the pajamas, the whole thing. So he would come and visit here on Halloween. That's awesome. 
I, I heard a tale from, um, I'm not sure if you're acquainted with Hank Garrett, um, but he had mentioned to me that he'd, he'd done a show with James Earl Jones, short-lived uh, police drama, I believe, I can't remember the name of it, but <laughs> one Halloween, James put on the Darth Vader outfit and came to his house and entertained his family and kids as Darth Vader. <laughs> Oh, man, that, that's so cool. You can't do better than that. You really can't. No, no no, voice assimilator here. This is the real deal. God, I hope he has movies of it. I don't know. You know, we've stayed in touch. I was, I was lucky enough to interview him uh, a few months back. And again, another just sweetheart of a guy with such an interesting life. And uh, Right. And he's, he'd mentioned that he was possibly going to be Uncle Wolfie on the show until they decided to go with the small boy. I don't know. I don't know if that's if I got that accurate or not. But um, you know, again, close connection with Fred Gwynn, obviously from Car Fifty Four, and it's just really neat how all, all you folks have this combined experience, and most came out wonderful people. Well, again, we had a lot of fun, and we're always appreciative of fans, and that's the way it should be. I mean, the fans make you, so you gotta you gotta be there for them. Right, right. Oh, I can't wait to see this exhibit. I saw you have some stuff from Phantasm, and that's one of my favorites. Yeah, I have Angus Grimm's costume and one of the balls they throw at people. And <laughs> I have a beautiful figure that a friend of mine, I commissioned to have the figure made. And everything in my museum is the exact height, weight, everything exactly the same as the original people who wore the stuff. Right. Angus was a sweetheart, too. Yeah, and he was another nice guy. Yeah. Some people are surprised that, uh, that some of these actors are small. Like, people don't realize that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was like 5'10". Well, no, but a Angus was actually pretty tall. Yeah, right. When I was living in Hollywood, I saw them. They were filming Twins. And I thought, my gosh, Arnold's not much taller than DeVito. <laughs> Well, DeVito in, in his bare feet, it's 4'11". Right. But the, there was no, it wasn't a huge contrast there. <laughs> it's like, wow. No, I know. I know. <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. Yeah. It, the statues in my exhibit of both DeVito and Schwarzenegger, and, they're, uh, you know, one guy is pretty small, and the other guy is looking, he looks like he's big, but he's not really that big. Yeah, yeah. No, um, you know, I like the low-budget stuff. I, I like the high-budget stuff, too, but... You know, Night of the Living Dead, of course, Phantasm. Um, even the first Evil Dead, or the first and second, were just over the top. My son and I, we just devour that stuff. Well, Evil Dead 2, I love that movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's Sam Raimi at his best, and that's... Both Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2 are great movies. Right. I wonder, really Rich, funny. I was going to ask, Rich, have you seen the Evil Dead musical? No. Oh, man. If it comes out again and heads down in that area, you must. It was so good. I mean, I expected it to be good. I expected it to be good, you know, and of course they tell you, you're not going to leave this place without being covered in blood. Just be, be prepared for that. <laughs> well, that's funny. But it's an interactive kind of experience where it's it's basically a Broadway show, but they're in the, they're in the audience and... None of us were spared the bloodbath. It was just such, oh, so entertaining. Granted, I almost got my eye taken out by one of the squirt guns shooting blood, but <laughs> that would have fit with the show, I well, think. I hope they warned you. 
<laughs> well, they warn you about you're going to get it on you, but didn't say anything about eye covering. <laughs> and I took a direct hit, and I was like, well, it could be just like the movie. And then somebody can swallow my eye as it flies out of my head. <laughs> Where did you see it? In San Jose, which, ironically, you just brought up a few minutes back. I was born in San Jose, and I live in Santa Cruz. So, yes, we have another thing in common. But, yeah, that's where I saw yeah. it, downtown San, uh, San Jose. And it came through, I think, about three, four years ago. And really well done. I mean, they put some money into this. So, in that way, the, the sets were elaborate. The actors and singers, they were just, they were great. And um, hopefully, hopefully they'll take it back out again. Yeah, when you, but when you come to L.A., you got to go to Icons of Darkness. You'll have a blast. It's a plan. I didn't get to the Hollywood Museum either, like a fool, but those, those two things are on my list, eh, for sure. Well, you won't be disappointed. That I'm sure of. I mean, I've, I've seen video and, and um, presentations and interviews with you going through the place, and it's like, okay. <laughs> I said to my son, Devin, we have not lived. We must go to this. <laughs> they also just shot, I was on the Today Show on the 28th of October, and that was fun. Right. I saw that. Um, but then we just shot a collector's call episode. We just finished that about 10 days ago. Um, and that was, they, that was a blast because we got some, a guy from one of the auction houses down to appraise some of the stuff. And then we had Matt Winston, who's Stan's son, come in and talk about, Matt's a good friend of mine. And Matt loves that we're preserving so much of his dad's legacy there. So it's like. You know, it's, that was just a really nice episode. We had fun doing it. I can't wait to see it. I haven't seen the finished episode, but that'll be oh, well, that'll be really Can't wait. I can't wait. Well, Rich, you've been so generous with your time today. I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna guzzle any more of it up. Okay. Well, if you come into town, let me know. And you, you and I have this uh, love of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. So, you know, we have that in common. So come in and see the stuff, and you'll get very excited, and you'll have a blast. Absolutely. And I want to thank our friends in common, Jerry and Teresa and others, and of course, your lovely wife, Beth, and just everyone that, uh, you know, it's so great, again, that you're out getting the love you deserve from those Leave it to Beaver fans. Lord knows you could hit multiple conventions and get that love, Rich, because of all the stuff that you have done, which is just immense. And I'll leave links to all of Rich's information, all his amazing works, and of course, how you can book your ticket to go to Icons of Darkness, the exhibition. Right. <laughs> You're like a really good ad for it. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I do that sometimes. I actually did, I did Jerry's merchandise site. I don't know if you've seen or had a chance to see that. I'll send you a link to that. And I try to be a spokesman. Um, they liked it, and he had some great stuff to, to work with. And again, they gave me the opportunity to get some exposure there, and just again, like you, wonderful people, supportive, wanting to help. And uh, again, just never stop, sir. Never stop. All right, man. I won't. Great. Well, thanks again, Rich. And have a uh, happy holidays. Yeah, same to you. Have a good one. Have a real good holiday and have a good New Year. Thank you, sir. There you have it. Another retro TV trivia in the books. Be sure to go to iconsofdarkness.com to hear more about Rich's exhibit book, Your Tour. 
I want to thank Jerry and Teresa Mathers for helping to make this happen, as well as Beth Carell for helping coordinate. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and leave me a positive rating and review. You'll also see links to all my social media accounts, and I would, of course, appreciate your follows there. I'm your host, Pat McCormack, from the golden rage of TV, and thanks for listening to Retro TV Trivia. Retro TV Trivia.